Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy New Year from the DSR Network. We hope you had a safe and happy holiday season. We're excited about our plans for 2022, which will include more member content, exciting partnerships, and programming expansion. To celebrate what we hope to be a successful 2022, we are offering $2 off a monthly membership or $20 off an annual membership. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code DSR2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash DSR member and use code DSR2022 at checkout. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from your nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We've got a great group here today, starting, of course, because it's Thursday, I think, with Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution and uh, formerly of the Obama White House. How are you today, Kavita? Great. Great to be here. Thank you, David. Always great to see you. And also old friend, Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Norm? Sadder than I was yesterday, but I'm hanging in, uh, David. Well, we'll talk about that. I am no doubt sure. And we are joined by another old friend, Simon Rosenberg, founder of the New Democrat Network. Hi, Simon. How are you today? Great, David. It's great to be here. Great to have you with us. You know, I thought we would talk about the Biden administration from a perspective that I have not seen much of. We are at the one-year anniversary. We have seen many assessments. Uh, I would say most of the assessments that I have seen have left something to be desired. Although, Simon, you regularly put out ones that point out the significant economic successes of the Biden administration, which have not gone as noted, perhaps, as they should. And there's been a lot of news, and no doubt this is the reason Norm isn't feeling so great, about you know recent setbacks, whether that's with regard to Build Back Better or more recently with regard to filibuster reform and voting rights. But what I haven't heard a lot about from either Biden or from his team or from his supporters or from his critics is where do we go for 2022? Like, what's the plan? What do we do to deal with COVID? What do we do to deal with the economy? What do we do to win the election in November? And you are three of the smartest people I know. And so I thought I would Start with that. But let me start with you, Kavita. The administration seems to have been knocked for a loop by Omicron. 
Now, Omicron seems to be retreating a bit, but how do you make sure that, you know, at some point in the next couple of months, America looks at COVID and thinks that's behind us? Yeah, I think that, uh, and I think the White House internally, maybe you can tell us if any of this came through your conversations, is actually trying to get a plan together. You could argue, and I would, that it's months too late on how to focus Americans on what has worked and also how to have a more normal 2022. So number one, they are doing the right thing six months too late on testing, getting out, actually rolling out a successful website to get tests is not a small feat as those of us who live through the healthcare.gov nightmare can say. So they're getting tests out, they're getting masks out, again, too late, but these are all going to be pieces of what hopefully once President Biden gets out in person with more people and can kind of do what Biden does well, which is really just, he's much better when he's Joe Biden unleashed, which is partly what you saw yesterday, but also what he seems to be able to do on the stump if he's in Birmingham, Alabama, all the way to the suburbs of Chicago. So he's got to give people the confidence that you will get COVID at some point if you haven't already. And hey, you might get it twice, but now you've got vaccines, therapeutics, you know, we've got pills. He talked about it yesterday, but you could tell either he just wasn't comfortable kind of going deeper on the successes of COVID. He stumbled on how they're getting kids in school, and that's going to continue to plague him unless he can flip that narrative. So it's showing people that we are not going to put you in insulated bubbles. And yes, we think that you'll need to judiciously use masks and you should all get vaccinated. But here's all these other things we're going to have so that even for those people who are triple vaccinated, wear masks diligently, probably like the four of us are really respective of the crazy CDC guidance that seems to change every seven days that we're going to feel more confident and not as depressed and a lot of the things that I personally kind of feel. So that's the outlook on COVID. But I also do think that there has to be another COVID relief package. So put into that package will be more money. He has really done very little to call out education, mental health. Norm and I have talked and written about it. He's got to start kind of addressing the palpable grief of the entire globe And actually also acknowledging the missteps. I mean, short of like wanting to take the Newsmax guy out with like a BB gun in my backyard, I felt like he was being very calm and offering earnest answers, but didn't go far enough to kind of squarely say to your point, David, like, here's what's going to change. I can't tell you what variant's going to come. I can't tell you when, like, or if a next surge will come. But here's how you're going to feel confident to go on vacation, enough money to go to restaurants and have a good time. And I want Americans to, you know, be able to go to the movies and, you know, go to the county fairs. And he's, he's got to do that. And we have the tools, but he's never kind of put it together. And he's probably let science lead too much because as scientists, we just don't do a very good job, like speaking in social psychology. We really don't. And he does do that well, or he used to do that well. So I'll stop there. Does that check that box for you, Simon? <laughs> Listen, I think that um, I think the most important thing that Kavita said in that terrific answer was that he's got to connect more with the struggle that we've all gone through. I mean, this has been the greatest disruption to American life in 100 years, perhaps in all of our history. He's so good at comforting people when mm-hmm. he goes to Kentucky and other places. He's never done an event with long COVID survivors. He's never had a healthcare workers into the White House in a long time. 
I've got three teenagers through this. This has been the hardest thing that I've ever done in my entire life. And I think that we've got to celebrate the collective achievement of the United States and the American people getting through all this, that he was our general that led us through to the other side. But we have to celebrate the extraordinary achievement together of what we've done. He has to make this about us and not about him. And I think that, you know, if you look at the economic data, David, where the economic data fits in, despite all this adversity that we just had, right, this incredible struggle, more new businesses formed last year than any year in American history, real wages up for the bottom 50% of real workers, right? More jobs created in one year than any year in American history. The can-do spirit of the American people, the resilience of what we've done together is extraordinary. And I think we have so much we can celebrate to be able to go to the American people and say, together, we defeated COVID. We got us back to normal. We built a strong economy. We're the best economy in the world during this period. And at the end of the day for the election, we're not going to be graded by the American people, I think, on how many bills we pass. But are things better? Basically, are things better? That's what an incumbent party has to deal with. We, and Joe Biden has to both do all of this and keep the economy going. And he's got to develop a political strategy to make sure we get more credit for all the good things that have happened. I mean, that, that, that's different from the day-to-day governing and legislating. They've underperformed on the political communication side. We just had one of the strongest economies in post-World War II America. And nobody knows that it happened. We can fix that. And so I just want to say when it comes to the elections, we can come back to this. I'm actually on the optimistic end about us making this competitive election, which for Norm may be the single most important thing we can do to preserve our democracy. I will confess, not confess, I'll brag that I had lunch with Norm yesterday and we talked about these things. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the democracy agenda for 2022 as you see it, Norm. But I will reveal that there were a couple of things that you talked about redistricting and the way it's going and some other things that were slightly optimistic bits of news that support what Simon was saying. And so maybe start with just whatever optimism you can muster before you <laughs> before you turn grim. I'm slightly less optimistic today, David, because I'm starting to hear a little bit that after the failure of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act yesterday, a number of states are now thinking that they can go much further on redistricting and on voter suppression and election undermining because the courts, you know, packed with Trump judges may let them do more and because there won't be that check and balance. But even with that, The fact is, we went into this cycle thinking that the redistricting process with Republicans controlling so many states was going to be absolutely disastrous for Democrats. And it's not. It's not going to be great, but it's not going to be so disastrous. And I think there's reason to believe, following on what Simon said, that we could see an even stronger economic recovery over the next few months that may get people feeling better. But, you know, the challenges to democracy are so great now and the disappointment of what happened yesterday. And I will tell you that watching the debate last night and hearing Republican after Republican talk about it's a federal takeover of elections, the Constitution gives the states the responsibility, as if there were not a part of Article One that made it explicit that it was the federal government and Congress that has the ability to regulate the time, manner, and place of federal elections. 
and that two Democrats didn't understand the consequences here, that's somewhat dispiriting. But we can overcome that. And let me come back to what I, I thought were just terrific presentations by Kavita and Simon and, and say a few things more on the messaging front. And I think that does matter. What happens is that when you just put out something with a name on it, Build Back Better, the Recovery Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, what ends up happening in the press corps is that it gets described in horse race and inside baseball terms. It's not about what you're doing or what you've done. It's about whether it's 3.5 trillion or 1.75 trillion or nothing at all. It's about whether you're up or down and have you convinced people to do it. And it's all about the negotiations with Joe Manchin. If they now move, they're doing something they should have done last year and Chuck Schumer should have done it last year, which is to parse these things out and bring up individual components and combine that with the president going around the country to talk about those individual components, universal pre-K, child care that is going to take that burden off of people so that they can go out and work and go to places where they're going to be tough elections. If you bring them up for votes and force Republicans, instead of being able to say it's more big government, but why they're against universal pre-K or free community college, force them to explain why they're against independent redistricting commissions, which are supported across the board in the country, or an attempt to make sure that elections are run fairly and that people have the ability to vote. If you do that, you change the frame, and that might help. More broadly, though, there are two things, putting the policies aside, or many of the policies aside. If you can move past COVID and get people to believe that we're returning to normality, And I think you do have to go back. The question about the school closings was in many ways another White House press corps inane question because Mm -hmm. the president has no authority over local schools. But Democrats, including the president, have not shown empathy to parents who've had to struggle and had their lives completely disrupted with school closings. At least you want to say, this is horrible. We had to do it for a period of time. We're going to get out of it as quickly as we can. And if you can deal with the inflation issue by smoothing out those supply chains, and they're starting to make a little bit of progress there, then I think you're in a much stronger position going into those elections. And I think you can get the president's approval rating up. But he's got to change the way he looks at the world, the way he communicates with audiences, the traveling around the country, the ability to use that bully pulpit more. And if that happens, we got a fighting chance at least to come out of this in a reasonable way. I think the three of you have described what needs to be done very well. But one theme that's common to the way the three of you have described this is better communicate progress on COVID, better communicate the great economic performance over the course of the past year, better communicate a kind of return to normalcy and, the, and so forth. Kavita, if you were going to tell the president, here's one big new thing you should do that you haven't done yet, what would it be? Oh, there's no doubt in my mind it's the moonshot for parental relief because Joe Biden, when he wants to, can actually sell ice to an Eskimo because you really just feel like he sees me. He has a little bit of that Clinton-esque quality 
combined with like, you know, just Joe Biden kind of going off off script. And I completely agree with Norm and Simon's kind of assessment of we've made so much progress, but you put Brian Deese up there, who I worked with in the Obama administration, and you get lost in inflation and CPI and nobody understands. Everybody understands the struggle that families have gone through. And it doesn't matter if you're black or white or rich or what color you are. He needs to put out kind of the equivalent of the momnibus parental relief package. And it could have everything we've been talking about that's in Build Back Better. Child, look at what happened on child family tax credits. Did you did you just say that? Did you say momnibus? Yes, the momnibus. Yes, it was a huge. There, there was actually Lauren Underwood, uh, who I also worked with, like all these people who do great things and are actually like doing the kinds of things that you know Joe Biden should pick up a little more on. To be candid, Lauren Underwood, while some of the previous relief packages were going around, house nurse, black female, first in her district, side of Chicago elected into Congress and she put together and Kamala Harris supported her. She's also getting the short end of the stick, but she put together kind of that quote, momnibus relief package from maternal health and very small tucked away a couple billion dollars, you know, and didn't get as much notice, but got so much traction with women and families, particularly black women who are, who are dying at a higher rate. But think about Joe Biden and like parental relief. It's actually what he's been trying to do, but it's packaged so poorly. And all people want to know, education is local, but they all still think that somehow Joe Biden's responsible for slapping masks on their kids and keeping them out of the world. Ted Kennedy would often teach us that you could get anything through, not this Senate, but you could get anything through Congress if you really just understood like kind of the will of the people. And I think this is the year where families need to be first. And it doesn't help that you have an octogenarian trying to sell it. So you really do need to bring like fresh, I'm dead serious when I told Jen Psaki this, I'm like, you've got kids. Like we need to see that this is a white house with children. Like Sasha and Malia running around made us feel like, you know, Michelle Obama understands us. I said, you need to bring some of that forward with Joe Biden, you know? So that's my, that's my solution. Let me follow through with just one point uh, that uh, amplifies what Kavita said. I'd love to see Joe Biden sit down with 10 working class mothers, yes. some of whom have been unable to work because of either COVID or because childcare eats up all of the costs, the, the money that they've earned. Others who weren't working, but have been stuck in a little apartment with three kids 24 seven for two years and just have him talk with them about not just the stresses, but what they need to make their families' lives work. And I think if he did that, because he has this empathy and understanding, it could reframe these issues. And you could yeah. talk about a momnibus in a different way. You know, getting back to what Simon said, sit down with 10 people who have long COVID. Talk about the fact that, yes, maybe you don't die if you have this, but this is deadly serious. It's not like having a flu or a cold. And that's why we poured these efforts into dealing with this set of issues. Sit down with a bunch of restaurateurs, restaurateurs mm -hmm. to talk yep. about the stresses that they've had. This is something that he could do that would play on his strengths and reframe things. And then just one other point, something we talked about yesterday. Rather than a summit on the global threats to democracy, which will uh, never work and didn't, do a real summit on the threat to American democracy and lay out everything that's being done to undermine it 
And that with, I think, a bunch of partners and we could get all kinds of organizations across the spectrum who believe in free and fair elections and a republic that actually is the kind that we're supposed to have can reframe this issue. These have to be reframed or we're not going to get anywhere. What do you think, Simon? Two things. You know, after the 2010 midterms, I went a couple of days after our rough midterms, I went to go see David Axelrod and David Seamus in the White House. We ended up doing a series of polls and market research for the, for the White House, which drove a lot of the State of the Union and a lot of the things that happened in 2011. And what we found was that we asked people, what would convince you that a recovery was happening? Who's the messenger for that story that you need to hear from? And what we heard is that it was local business people. It was, you know, the brewer who hired two more people or the restaurateur who hired, you know, an initial server or the factory that went to a second shift, right? And I think we're going to have to do some of that stuff all over again. We created this thing called Champions for Change, which was a key part of the what happened during the Obama White House, where every week we were bringing in people from local communities who had persevered and gotten through the recovery and were building businesses. We have to identify ourselves with recovery. And I, you know, I've been in touch today with actually leading House Democrats about this, trying to revive this whole strategy that we use very effectively to build towards the 2012 re-election. And I think that's the one thing I would talk to Ron Klain and Joe Biden about, which is when you go out have local folks who are seeing recovery happen connected to your work that you did, the ARP, other things, and try to help the American people understand that things are really better, right? And in addition to the struggle, I agree with everything that Norm and Kavita said, right? I'm, I deeply believe that we haven't hit the emotional tone properly on the struggle of everyday people during COVID. And I think he can do that. I think that's within his power, but we've got to convince people that things are better. And I think we can. I think this is, these are doable things. What's important about everything we're talking about is that all of this is doable. And I think, David, what's going to keep the election close for us is that the Republicans have embraced MAGA full on. The voters voted against MAGA in 2018 and 2020. They've done nothing to give an olive branch to swing suburban voters, right? In many ways, they're more radicalized than they were before. That's going to keep this election close. And if we can get our positives up, tell our story, make it clear that things are better, I think this is going to be a very competitive election. Simon, have you, can I ask, have you been able in your conversations with House Democrats? I assume there's receptivity. I assume they're kind of scared. Maybe I'm wrong. But do you sense that they're really understanding kind of the gravity of this situation? Because I've often found, I I talk more to Senate colleagues and I get this like glazed look a little bit. Like It's very different in the, it's very different in the House. The House, keep in mind that many of the folks who got elected in 2018 in particular Mm -hmm. had never Mm -hmm. run for office before. And they were, they were patriotic, you know, many of them had served in the military or in the government and were patriots who ran to fight Trump. And so they're inexperienced politicians. And so there is enormous fear. I mean, they know that the landscape has changed and that they're struggling to adapt. They haven't gone through a landscape change before as an elected official, right? I was a, the lead outside strategist for the House Democrats in 2018. I was part of the strategy, created the strategy that flipped the House in 2018. So I'm very close to many of these folks. And there's just enormous fear and confusion. And, and I think that I think we need a clear path. One of the things that Joe Biden has to do now, like any great leader, he has to create a, you know, it's the moonshot, right? Like we're going here and he's got to create a clear, simple understanding where we're all moving together. 
<laughs> in the same direction because I think there's a lot of faction a lot of factionalization happened you know in the family over the last six months. I'll say one last thing I just want to get out there, which is that you have to keep in mind about us getting credit for the economy. But the message of BBB was that what we had done with the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, was insufficient. So for six months, we told voters that what we had just done was actually not good enough. And as opposed to wrapping that, as Norm said, wrapping that stuff into a continuation of the fight against COVID and recovery, I think we told the American people that our economic plans were insufficient and not good enough. And they heard us. Well, we can change that story now. And I think if I were advising Joe and Ron, right, single highest priority for the Democratic Party politically in the next six months is we don't get credit, the economic recovery, we are not going to be competitive in the midterms, period. And that's one thing we can all do together. And you know what? It's the single most important thing that Joe Biden's done. So that's it's actually happened. Let me give some uh, additional political advice to the White House. And we saw a little bit of it in the press conference yesterday, which was a little bit of channeling his inner Harry Truman by going after the Republicans for not having an agenda. Boy, I would double and triple down on that. One of the things that I would do, we see more and more stories now of Republican House members who voted against uh, the infrastructure plan and, of course, the recovery plan, now going back and taking credit for the things that were done. I'd have the president, the vice president, cabinet members going into many of those House districts, talking about what was done and talking about how the do-nothing Republicans voted against it. You've got to turn this around because the fact is the nature of the press coverage is such that Republicans get off unscathed with all of this. Yesterday's coverage of the failure on the election and voting reform bills still focus mostly on the inability of Democrats to get their act together and not on 50 Republicans, including 16 in the Senate who had supported the Voting Rights Act in the past, voting against everything. We see now a survey done of Senate Republicans about if they parse out from the Build Back Better plan, just the climate parts, not a single one would say that they would vote for it. This has to be turned around into a party that's trying to help people with their lives and another party that either wants to overturn elections, cover up for a violent insurrection, or just simply disrupt people's lives so that they can win again. And all they want is to win. To paint the Republicans as being out of the mainstream, think about how much they've given us, right? Choice, climate, yeah. health care, democracy issues, right? COVID. This is, uh, you know, they're down in polling, right, on questions of things, on all those issues I went through, do you favor Democrat, Republican? It's 20, 30, 40 points, right? We're talking about them being in many of these major issues tw at, you know, in the 20s and 30s. So the only big issue they have right now that's putting them back into the game is the economy. They're beating us on the economy. If we take that away from them, they got nothing. And so it's one of the reasons why we've got to really, we got to solve this problem. We are 10 points down to Republicans on the economy after a year where we had the best economic performance in decades. Since 1989, 42 million jobs have been created in America. 40 million of those were created under Democratic presidents. We shouldn't be losing the economic debate to Republicans. And I think this is a huge priority for us. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think if I were going to summarize the first half hour of our conversation, it's tell the truth about what Democrats have done. Tell the truth about who Republicans are. We need it to be that 
simple. This is the point in our podcast where we take a brief break because those of you who are listening out there in the general public and are not members, we say goodbye. And if you want to listen to the remaining third of all of our podcasts, all you have to do is be a member, which doesn't cost a lot. And you go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and you can help support this and all the other things we're doing. And I, I don't think you want to miss, you know, things like the remainder of this when we talk a little bit more about how do you win in 2022 and who can lead that charge. So to all of you who are uh, departing at the moment, thanks for joining us. Please join us again next week. And for the rest of you, we'll be back in one moment. <laughs>